We're going to begin tonight week two of our class, Methodism 101. Last week we talked a little bit about the history of English Christianity, basically, up through the early 18th century. Uh, we talked about uh, the Western tradition as opposed to the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and then the Reformed or the Protestant tradition, both in its uh, Lutheran and Continental forms, and how those came together with the existing Roman Catholic doctrine in a via media in the Church of England. And that how in the 18th century, uh, was after, especially after the um, English Civil War, there was a sense that uh, religion, uh, in the words, uh, not quite in the words of Chris, the late Christopher Hitchens, who said religion poisons everything, but they definitely believed that enthusiastic religion poisoned everything. And uh, as a result, it became very, very placid, very inoffensive, but in the end, uh, non-transforming and uh, led to a dark time uh, in, in English history. And we talked about how that was a moment not unlike our own time. Wesley comes into this time, this time and the changes in the economy uh, produced dislocation, new jobs for some and new in uh, new environments, but also other people losing traditional means of uh, making money. There's a rise in uh, addiction, particularly in alcoholism with uh, the uh, cheap distilling of gin. Uh, you'll find Methodists historically, and this is to open a can of worms that we're not going to talk about tonight. <laughs> Methodists have historically had a dim view of drinking alcohol. That's the can of worms. Wesley, on the other hand, made a distinction between beer and wine, which he thought were okay, and distilled liquor, whiskey, and gin in particular, which he thought were of the devil. Later Methodists came to find all alcohol to be of the devil, and now we've kind of gone a little bit the other way. So uh, and now, it's, uh, now I say it depends on what Methodist church you're in, uh, how it goes. I have served churches where people in their 70s have, have said correctly with a straight face they had never drank a drop in their life. And I've been to some that don't understand why they can't have uh, they can't have beer at a Sunday school party, and so you know, kind of all in between. But but uh, but but part of that was alcohol was uh, destroying, particularly the working poor in England. Uh, it was uh, it was a time where people were seeking distraction, and uh, and and in a time of upheaval. Wesley enters into this. He enters in in June 28, 1703, to St. Susanna Wesley. Uh, I mentioned last week briefly, both of them were, uh, were what we would today call PKs. They were preacher's kids. They, were both kid they both grew up in what were called dissenting or nonconformist households. Some of you weren't here last week. When we talked about in 1662, in the time of the Restoration, they, the, uh, um, the English government passed a law that said uh, you, that if you were going to be a church, you had to use a certain form of worship. And both uh, John Wesley's grandfather said they could not do that, and they lost their jobs. Uh, and in fact, uh, Susanna Wesley's father was a very prominent minister in London, and he was expelled from St. Giles in the fields. And uh, so they were raised in these dissenting households that often had this impact of what we call Puritanism. Puritanism, those are the people who settled this country in Massachusetts with the buckle shoes. They were Puritans. And they, uh, they had some uh, real 
ideas uh, about discipleship, and they were part of the 18th century revival. And so there are definitely this Puritan influence in Samuel and Susanna Wesley. However, they were rebellious teenagers, and their form of rebellion was to join the established church. <laughs> you know, Susanna Wesley, I read today, was, uh, was the last born of 25 children. So that a lot of the existing forms of teenage rebellion must have already been done by that <laughs> And so they joined the established church, and like many converts, and we don't necessarily have this huge problem with this in Methodism, although I, I know this is really true a lot in Catholicism, the converts become more Catholic than the Catholics. Have you ever seen someone, they convert to something, and they're more into it than the people who've lived their whole life in it? That's what these two are like. And so they become super Tory. And Tory is the, the, the today's called the Conservative Party in, London, in Britain. Uh, they become strong monarchists. In fact, uh, this is a true story. Susanna Wesley and Samuel were strong monarchists, but Sa Susanna was even more so. Because we talked about in 1688, the Whig Party deposed King James II because they were afraid, not without cause, that he might reintroduce Catholicism to England. James leaves, and then the glorious revolution, a bloodless coup, uh, William and Mary come. Well, William becomes the king, and Samuel acknowledges him as the king, but Susanna does not. This creates a problem in their marriage. One night during prayers, and this is so odd for us to think of as Americans, but in England, during the services of worship in the prayer book, uh, there are multiple times where you pray for the king or queen. And, uh, and he prays for King Will our King William, and when he ends, Susanna does not say amen. This turns out to be a major problem for their marriage. And Samuel, who was somewhat of an impetuous kind of guy, told his wife, if we shall have separate kings, we shall have separate beds. <laughs> and then he goes, and he leaves for London, for a conference at which he lasts all year. <laughs> I think about 1702, William, uh, come, William and Mary die and comes to throw as Queen Anne, mostly now known for a style of furniture. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Queen Anne comes to the throne and they both decide they can handle Queen Anne as their monarch. <laughs> and so they reunite and nine months later, John Wesley is born. <laughs> That's a true story. True. <laughs> John Wesley is number 15 of 19. Ten survived to adulthood. Uh, he is born and raised in Epworth. If you can see on the map here, if you've ever been to London, or uh, ever been to England, London's down here. If you've ever been to York, you know, the famous York Minster. It's just below York, above uh, in, in Lincolnshire. Uh, um, is this little town of Epworth. Epworth is a place that you would never go except on a Wesley tour. It's about a thousand people. It's a, it's a cute little town. It's a typical English country town. There's a thousand people. That's a little market square, a little circle in the middle, and there's little restaurants around it. And they were in Epworth because Samuel was for 39 years the rector of St. Andrew's Church in Epworth and then also a little chapel in a place called Root. And uh, this is actually their list of pastors going back to 1319. So 
Believe it or not, uh, they do not change pastors as much as Method United Methodists do. Um, so for 39 years, his dad was the, the rector of St. Andrew's Church in Epworth. Now I want to tell you a little bit about, uh, about it. He was there 39 years, and his parishioners hated him most of the time. <laughs> they hated him. Um, in, in fact, uh, I'll tell you more about that later. Um, it was in a town of a thousand people. It was the only church, and I asked when we were. I was in England in 2017, so every picture from England is a picture I took, with a couple exceptions that I couldn't didn't have pictures of. Um, but I said I asked the person who was there. I said, "In, in do we know?" I asked. I was a Wesley scholar with us on the trip, and I asked him, "Do we know how many people attended the the Epworth Church? It was the only church in town in in seven in the 1700s." And his answer was, "We believe about 40." Their attendance was about 40 in a town of 1,000. Interestingly, I asked the rector, how many people are there? It's, it's now about 40. Um, so if you think about, we, we often talk about the state of Christianity in Europe today. It was a comparable state in the days when John Wesley was born. So you know, we think that that arrow that direct, only flows one direction, um, but it doesn't. Uh, for example, where we live here in Kentucky, prior to the Cane Ridge Revival of 1795, it was believed that only 5% of people in Kentucky attended church at least once a year. Within 50 years, it was 50% every week. You know, God can renew, and that's, that's a lesson uh, from the life of John Wesley. This is the inside. This is, this is what the church looks like inside. Uh, I don't even know why I show you this. Was, this is a Victorian remodeling, but it's basically to show you the size of the church he was in. This is the baptismal font where all the Wesley children were baptized. Um, and it's in this little church. His dad was there uh, for 40 years. And I asked, why would anyone stay in this little church? His dad was a really, um, was really well thought of, but, but the answer was that uh, the Epworth Church had a lot of money. And so... Uh, and, but, but is it, and, and so this is the rectory. It's funny. This is the largest house in the town, um, which really makes you wonder one of the many reasons his parishioners disliked him uh, was he lived very grandly while they did not. Uh, the, um, there were massive projects to drain the swamps around Epworth that the crown supported. Uh, the people who lived there opposed them, but their rector supported them. Uh, essentially, uh, this roof was originally thatch, which came to a head uh, in 1709 or 1710 when the rectory caught fire and burned. And at that moment, and at the last moment before the roof caved in and the house burned, uh, John Wesley was pulled from the window. So at that young age, uh, there's, a line, there's a line in the King James Version, Zechariah 3.2, talks about a brand plucked from the burning. And so Susanna Wesley, from the beginning, instilled in John this idea that God had a special destiny for him. You can imagine how that would impact. In addition, it's interesting, I mentioned there were 19 children, only 10 lived to adulthood. He was not their first John. They had had another son named John who died in infancy. And so when their next son came, they gave him the same name. So in some way, which you're like, that's kind of weird. Um, but uh, gave him the same name. And, and uh, I had a professor in seminary who talked about how that impact on someone, that he, they, the expectations of two children were put upon John. In addition, this idea that he was miraculously spared. Uh, in fact, this here is his father Samuel in this picture. Uh, his father Samuel was convinced he was dying, and he prayed to commend his son's soul to God. 
Uh, but, and then a neighbor saw him in the window, and they, the townspeople lifted him up to pull him out of the house. Now, it is worth saying that it's believed that one of his parishioners set this fire. <laughs> so one thing that's interesting is, is uh, Samuel Wesley was somewhat of an absentee father. He would go to these church conferences. Today, you go to a conference that might last four days. He would go to a conference that would last a year. He'd be gone for a year. Remember, Susanna, 10 children. And she believed not, she had some very distinct ideas about raising children. One, she believed children's wills existed for one reason, that was for them to be broken. And so she believed in breaking the children's will at least by five, if not three, would be preferable. But she was actually, in some ways, quite progressive. She believed that uh, girls should learn just as boys did. Uh, it was once thought Susanna was educated. It's, it's highly unlikely that she was formally educated because it just didn't happen for women in those days. But she was a smart lady, and she was educated as much informally as possible. In fact, she believed she would not let her girls learn to sew until they learned to read. Uh, so she was, uh, but, but her chief thing was ensuring the spiritual condition of her children. She took it as very seriously that she should be the one to make that her one of her primary responsibilities as a parent was that her children would be followers of Jesus. And so it is believed every week that she spent at least a half hour one-on-one uh, inquiring of the spiritual condition of her children and working with them and teaching them. Uh, that was something that was really formative, and it was believed it happened in this kitchen. Uh, this is the kitchen. This is one of the most consequential rooms in the history of, in, of American Christianity. Is this is the place where John and Charles Wesley were taught uh, the Bible. There were no Sunday schools. There were no children's ministry programs in those days. It was all done at home and uh, by the mother in, uh, in this case. Another interesting thing that happened in this kitchen was while Wesley, Samuel Wesley was gone, he had an associate <coughs> minister who was called a curate, and he was apparently a terrible preacher. It was said he only preached on one subject, and that was pay your debts. It was later believed that Samuel Wesley owed him over a year's salary. So, um, so it was, uh, and, and, and this unedifying preaching, people came to Susanna because she was raised in this great Puritan home, and Puritans were literate people. They were people, we think of them as very dour people, but they were people of great learning and culture and people who were very knowledgeable and, and sought things, not just religiously, but culturally. And she and people came to her and said, will you teach us? And they would have Sunday evening Bible studies in this kitchen, which supposedly drew five times as many people as the morning services. <laughs> Women didn't preach in those days, but she and it was illegal to have a church meeting in a house. And the curate wrote to Samuel and said, make your wife stop. And Samuel writes to Susanna and says, we need you to stop. Or she said, he says, you know, I hear you're doing this. What do you think? Do you, have, you think this is proper for you to do? And she writes back. She says, if you tell me to stop, I will stop. And then I will not be the one to answer at the day of judgment why these people weren't taught. <laughs> she was a one tough lady. There is no further correspondence on this matter <laughs> that, is, that exists. 
So Wesley grows up in this family. This was a grand home. It's probably about 3,500 square feet, a large home even today, but certainly then when most people lived in only one or two rooms total for a family. But Samuel was a terrible manager of money, and so frequently during the winter they could only afford to heat the kitchen, and the rest of the house was left cold. Eventually, John goes to prep school at Charterhouse in London, very, very ritzy, very fine school. He is paid for not by Samuel, who couldn't afford it, but by a wealthy landowner in their area who took an interest in the Wesleys. I think it was a distant family member as well. So he ends up at Charterhouse, and then he goes up to Oxford. Uh, I say up because apparently in England you don't go any other direction to Oxford but up. <laughs> and he went to Christchurch, Oxford. Christchurch was and is the grandest of the Oxford colleges, a school of privilege and gentlemen. If you look at the picture on the right, you might recognize that. Does anyone recognize that picture? It's the Great Hall in Harry Potter. It's the Great Hall in Harry Potter is based. And so... This is a true story. Two, year, two years ago, I teach a confirmance about John Wesley, and I do this presentation. What is the one thing they take away from it? John Wesley went to Hogwarts. <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't even know what they're talking about, and that's okay. But I will say, when we toured this, the true story is it's like 12 Methodist preachers and 100 teenagers <laughs> looking to get in to see Hogwarts. Uh, it, there are no floating candles in the real one, though. But... Um, but Harry Potter is a famous book and now movie series, and uh, it takes place. It takes place. Uh, takes place, and then this is one. This is kind of what it's based on. So you can imagine, it comes from this little town and is in this really uh, grand uh, space. Oxford is uh, Oxford. Unlike we think of Harvard or Yale, it's kind of comparable in this country. But Oxford is not one college; it's multiple colleges, and you'll see the the spires that dotted the landscape of uh, of the. Uh, of, of, the, of, the, of the 18th century. Uh, Christchurch is number 16 right here, the tallest of the spires of the, Oxford of the Oxford colleges. So he goes in 1725, about the time he finishes his bachelor's degree, he determines that he is going to read for holy orders. There is no seminary in those days, so you take a course of study under a bishop, which in his case was the Bishop of Lincoln, and uh, the uh, Bishop of Lincoln, uh, and then while he does that, his mother, by the his uh, father is not, his father is, father kind of wants him to go into something else, but his mother, Miss Susanna, is definitely like, you should be a priest, and he does, and so in 1725, he begins, he encounters while he's studying Thomas Akempis' famous imitation of Christ in Jeremy Taylor's <laughs> Holy Living. And this comes up because he is raised in this, and he believes, he says, I've always felt I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm nothing but a Christian. But he gets there and he says that maybe being a Christian is more than just going to church on Sunday, more than being a good person or a good citizen, that, that maybe there is something deeper and grander to Christianity. And he, he gets this from Thomas Akempis and Jeremy Taylor's Holy Living. In those early times, he has this idea that part of being a of living a holy life is to be always mindful of what you do with your time. So he begins, it's something that lasts his whole life, he makes a meticulous diary in 10-minute increments of everything he was doing from the moment he woke up, which was as soon as he could see the hands of the clock from the sunlight which if you've ever been to England in the summer, is frightfully early. Uh, like 
the sun comes up like 4.30 there and until, uh, until about 8 o'clock at night. And so he would mark every 10 minutes. And in 1726, he becomes a fellow of Lincoln College. Uh, Lincoln College is, is one of the less grand, but still very grand. This is his study. It's actually a reconstruction of Wesley's study. And uh, this is the chapel of Lincoln College. I show you these pictures to say that he lived a very grand life. Even today, if you go to Oxford, you're just struck by how lovely a place it is. At least I was. I hear Cambridge. I've never been to Cambridge. I hear it's even lovelier. But uh, so he, he does this, and they are in the midst of this comfort. Uh, he is a gentleman of the 18th century, a budding scholar. A fellow means a professor. Um, but they didn't lecture, really. It was usually in tutorial format, asking questions. And so uh, this is the place where he would receive students who would pay him. And uh, this is where they would, would worship. And it is said in Oxford that this is the first, Wesley called this the first rise of Methodism. In 1727, he receives his master's degree, and he goes to be his father's curate at Epworth. Um, but he go, he, and he likes it. He says, I could do this my whole life. Uh, he is ordained in 1728. Uh, keep that in mind. He is ordained in 1728. This will come up. But then, at the same time, his younger brother Charles goes to Christ Church. It is said that at Oxford in those days was a, a quote, comfortable degree of slackness in both academics and religion which basically means it was the party school of the 18th century, <laughs> um, which is kind of odd to think of. But uh, um, so he goes to, uh, he, and, and Charles um, goes, and he's not a very good student and not very serious about his faith. But then Charles writes, what, writes John that he awoke of his lethargy, and he says, come back to Oxford to teach us and to lead us in how we can be better Christians. And so they form a group, William Morgan and Bob Kirkham, and they meet and they read, they read great books and they hold each other accountable. It's called the Holy Club. They receive a lot of strange nicknames. One of them is Sacramentarian. That never caught on. And one of them was Methodist because they did everything methodically. That one stuck. And they adopted it like so many things. They are accused of something, and they decide to take that on as a point of pride. And so they meet, and that group, those four men, young men, all in their 20s, joining together to read books and to share life with each other, that is the, 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 out of this desire that there has to be something more to the Christian life. I think that's a common feeling of people in their, their 20s. There's got to be something more. So they're experiencing uh, what... Uh, what what life is like and claiming faith for themselves. Uh, so not only do they read and they study, but also they feel they ought to be in practical ways to be with the poor and particularly with those in prison. And so just imagine they leave this room to go visit this room, the castle prison. Later they go to the Bocardo, the city prison as well. And uh, they, they, uh, every day they mark they're either going to be in a prison or they're going to be working with the poor every day. That's the original way. And they felt that by doing this would help them be more serious uh, about, uh, about their faith. <coughs> Over time, like so many things in colleges, it doesn't quite uh, last forever. And, in, and a lot of this, the, these original people have moved away. And by 1735, Wesley returns to Epworth. It is his father's dying wish 
that he become the rector of Epworth after him? John gets there and he really doesn't want to do it. And, uh, and, and the bishop says, well, you don't really have to do it. Uh, what you're doing is the fellow of Lincoln College, which his father was super proud of. In fact, when his, after John became fellow of Lincoln, he said, no matter what happens to me, I take pride that my Jackie is a fellow of Lincoln. And, uh, and so he goes, and uh, instead he gets, uh, when he goes to London to help raise money, his father writes this commentary on the book of Job, which he dedicates to Queen Anne, another funny story. He then present, he gets an opportunity to present his commentary on Job to Queen Anne, who apparently looks at it and comments on what lovely binding it has. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but so the, the, he, he spends the rest of his life trying to get people to read his commentary. And after his death, John kind of takes up. When he's in London trying to find some people to buy this book, uh, a bishop says, why don't you come to Georgia, this colony of Georgia? And he finds that his father had previously said, if I were 10 years younger, I would move to Georgia and spend the rest of my life there. And so in some ways, Georgia comes out of this desire of Wesley to go deeper in his faith to step out further, but also to fulfill his father's dying wish. If I'm not going to go to Epworth, maybe I'll do something else that my dad wanted uh, to do. And so, and, but he writes when he leaves, my chief motive in going is saving my own soul. Wesley, even though he had tried, he was working at it, he was putting himself into it, he still did not have that assurance that he was, Christ, he was a Christian, that he was uh, a child of God, uh, we might even say that he was saved. He didn't have that. In addition, he thought he would, this would be an opportunity for him to try to create one of these communities of, of, uh, of, of uh, study and prayer and work uh, while he was in Georgia. So he sails for Savannah. Now most of us, if you, mo many of you, I, I suspect many of us, maybe most, have been to Savannah. And those who haven't been to Savannah, you can kind of imagine it, right? The beautiful squares and the moss-draped trees. I want to assure you, Savannah in 1735 was nothing like this. This is, pro this is a picture of what we believe Savannah looked like. They had cleared the pine forests, and they had built little houses on it. It's not quite as attractive as it is now. No squares, um, and, they and, and it, it's a place filled with malaria. And so he goes, and it's, and it's a prison. It's a penal colony. People had a choice. You go to prison, or we could deport you to Georgia. And he goes, and, he, and, and Charles goes as well, and uh, John goes to be the rector of Christ Church, which is still a church uh, in, in uh, Savannah. And he goes and in uh, Georgia, he calls it the second rise of Methodism, and he has a rather limited success. It turns out that the colonists do not like his plan of requiring you to come to worship at 5 a.m. if you want to take communion. Uh, that uh, he was, uh, he didn't quite buy into the whole idea that the minister was the minister of the whole community. A man died who was not an Anglican, and he refused to, say, to give him a funeral. Um, and then his most interesting thing was he met a young woman named Sophie Hopke. This is a famous story. Uh, Wesley turns out to be, despite how close he was with his mother and his sisters, he is incredibly uh, bad with women in his life. Incredibly bad. It was said that uh, he would read her passages of church history on their dates, <laughs> and that uh, that he and that uh, he she wanted to marry him, but he kept dragging his feet. He was afraid of commitment, we might say. Eventually, she marries someone else, 
And Wesley responds by banning them both from church because he felt he was not properly notified as the minister of their intention to get married. Sophie Hopke uh, is not a nobody. Her uncle is the governor of Georgia. He's been collecting notes on John Wesley, and Wesley himself says, there were probably a good 10 or 12 charges I was facing. I was about to be indicted. And uh, so he decides, you know what? I think it's time to go home. It's been real. It's been fun, but it hasn't been real fun. Um, and so he escapes. So he goes in the middle of the night, and on his way back, he gets in a terrible storm. I did not take this picture. Uh, but, this is, um, but this is just an idea of what, uh, he's on a storm. And I don't know if you've ever been, at, one, Wesley hated uh, ships. And so sailing back and forth across the Atlantic probably wasn't the like, like most conservative decision, we should say, that he ever made. Um, but so, he, so he, uh, he comes back, and during this terrible storm, the ship is taking on water, um, and he's convinced he's going to die. You ever had that kind of moment where you think you're going to die? And he realizes at that mo moment he's terrified of death. He's absolutely terrified of death. That he's not ready. He's not ready emotionally, he's not ready physically, but he's not ready spiritually. This is a guy who'd been a priest for 10 years. He grew up in a Christian home. His dad was a minister. He was a professor. He was leading groups. But when it came down to it, in his heart, he wasn't convinced. That right there is a turning point in the history of Methodism. But what he, so what else, what else impacts him is during this trip, at the same time, he is on there, and there's a group of German Moravians. And during this, John Wesley is, is, is scared of his wits, and he's the chaplain on the boat. And the Moravians are sitting and singing songs. They're convinced that whatever will happen, they're in the hands of God. And so Wesley goes to these Moravians and says, what is your secret? And, uh, and what happens is, is they say, we have faith. And, and Wesley previously said, well, there's different kinds of faith you can have. And, and Peter Burler is a leader in Moravians. He says, no, faith, you've got to either have it or you don't have it. And he suggested, you ought to preach that we are saved by faith alone. And if you don't have it, preach it until you have it. Which I think is the original fake it till you make it. Um, it's true. And so he's preaching. So he's preaching this. And it is offensive to people. That we are justified by faith and nothing else, by trusting God, and he's thrown out of churches, and uh, he forms a society in London. He was, I could talk more about societies. Societies were in existence, and Moravians were a society, but he creates an Anglican society. They're still loyal Anglicans, but they also have these additional meetings, like small groups, where they meet to join together in London. And this is about 1736, 1737, I'm sorry. And uh, this comes to a head on May 24, 1738 at Aldersgate Street in the city of London. It's not far from St. Paul's. He had been to St. Paul's Cathedral for Evensong. And then Wesley goes to this Moravian meeting, and he says that at about 8.30, they're reading from uh, Luther's preface to, the, to his commentary on Romans. And as they're reading, Wesley says, I feel my, found my heart strangely warmed. That in that moment that he felt in his insides that he was an adopted child of God, that his sins, even his, 
were forgiven. And that changed everything. That, that uh, he didn't believe that, that he had been raised that, you know, you just kind of go to church, you do your duty, you do your Christian things, and it'll be okay. And Wesley knew, in my heart, it's not okay. I need more than that. I, I need to have this deep, personal relationship with God, and, and, and it comes by grace. By grace. And we'll talk more about grace next week. Um, and, and, and it's all about that. And he says that, that uh, he, didn't, he didn't earn it, but what he did, where he practiced what were called the means of grace. There were ways that God has given us, reading the Bible, prayer, going to church, doing good works. By doing those things, he opened himself up to what God might do in his life. And at this moment, his life was changed. And that ignited that's the third rise of Methodism, and that ignited the movement. And so he starts creating societies. Uh, one big change he starts making is, is in a place called Bristol, is something called field preaching. Did you know it was illegal to preach outside of a church in England? Uh, and, and, uh, but George Whitfield, who's another guy, says, uh, you should come preach in the fields. And he's like, no, we don't do that. They didn't do that. It's not comfortable outside. The people are mean. <laughs> it's true. Um, but he says, no, you need to do it. And he goes and he says, you know, whereas you might preach to 100 people inside, he would go in there and he said there were 8,000 people show up to hear it. Many of them people who are not welcome in church, coal miners, the poor, the addicted, they would come to hear and said that, that when they, the cry, that the tears would roll down through the coal dust on their face, creating rivers of tears. And at that moment, he knew that this message had to be shared with more than just the 5% of people or the 4% of people who went to church. This message needed to be shared. And so what he did was he would start commissioning preachers to just go, and they would stand at what's called the Market Cross, which you remember in England. Every town has one of these little crosses in the middle of it. And they would just start talking, start preaching right there, and people would come to hear them. Uh, Whitfield was the master of this. Uh, it was said that in Philadelphia he would come, and, and Benjamin Franklin, who was not a great Christian and was a skeptic of Christianity, would come and say, I could barely go to hear him because I knew that if I heard him, I would give him money. <laughs> and it's true, there's a longer story about that. And, and so he was part of this bigger p picture of field preaching. But what made, and, and, and what made Wesley different was, Wesley was an administrator and an organizer. So anyone could preach, but Wesley believed what really mattered was not that you preached and they realized they needed Jesus, but what do you do with them after they meet Jesus or after they have a need for Jesus? Because Wesley believed you might be awakened, you might come to the consciousness of your need for a Savior, and i got to say, in his day and even today, we collapse those two things together. Like you have a need, you receive him, done. But for Wesley, it was 13 years apart. And so people might be awakened by the field preaching, and then he would develop systems. This is a little chapel called the New Room. What this is right here is the main shopping district in Bristol called the Horse Fair. And through this gate down there, not on the street, but through this little narrow alley is this little preaching house called the New Room. And that's what it looked like. It's kind of a classic 18th century English preaching house. <coughs> the communion table comes later. They weren't a church. 
So it was just a preaching house, and they would preach at 5 in the morning. They would have preaching services during the day. And around the balcony were apartments for preachers and for Wesley himself. Uh, and so they began that there. And they also created societies, and they created classes and bands and different ways that if you were serious, if you were awakened, you could join a class. That was a group of people of about 15 uh, that would come together uh, for spiritual growth. And then a smaller group of a band, which might be three to six, and, and uh, just men or just women to come to confess sin to one another and receive the forgiveness of sin. And then larger groups of societies. And, and it becomes headquartered in London, and this is a place called Wesley Chapel. And this, the genius of Wesley, and I could go on about this, was that he organized things. Whitfield was a greater preacher, but are there? But what? Who who connects their spiritual ancestry to Whitfield? Almost no one, because Whitfield was a great preacher, but he had no way of dealing with people who had been awakened under his preaching. Wesley, the genius, was the second half. Was creating societies and creating uh, this movement that was organized. He appointed preachers in places, and they would travel and preach, and then they would, when they would come, they wouldn't just preach, but they'd also set up a society, and they had general rules. Some of you are familiar with the general rules. Do no harm, do good, attend to the ordinances of God, and we'll talk more about that later. And they, and they said there was one rule to get in. You had to have a desire to flee from the wrath to come. Um, so that was... Uh, and you could come, and it would help you grow closer uh, to God in classes and, and in bands. Uh, Wesley lived, this is the chapel right here. This was his townhouse where he lived um, up until the day he died. And in fact, it was here that he died uh, in this bed in, in 1791. Um, he was an old man. Uh, he had lived a long time for the 18th century. And when, when he died, his, his uh, legacy was, uh, in the end, millions of people whose lives were changed. Uh, because Wesley had this deep desire in his own soul uh, that he would somehow really come to be what he called an altogether or a real Christian. Uh, and that desire in his life uh, spilled over into his desire uh, for other people. And so that's, that's kind of the abridged version of, of the life of John Wesley. Uh, there's so much more that could be said.